If a person publicly makes an ambiguous statement, and another person puts out a second statement giving an interpretation of the first one, is that second interpretative statement one of fact or of opinion? That's just one of the questions arising from the recent High Court libel case of Riley and Murray, which we unpack in this episode of the Media Law Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. I'm joined once again by Paul Ragg for this special episode, which we are going to devote to a detailed discussion of a single judgment. The case of Riley and Murray is a case that we've covered in its uh, earlier hearings on the podcast last summer. The judgment of Mr. Justice Nicklin in the High Court was handed down on the 20th of December 2021. Uh, Paul and I have had the opportunity to uh, look over the judgment uh, in some detail and to discuss it before uh, coming on the podcast today. And each of us has some issues with it. Um, It's a case that is going to set a degree of precedent, at least uh, uh, until the point it is appealed, if it is appealed, um, concerning libel law uh, as it applies to tweets, that is, posts on the social media site Twitter for the uninitiated. Um, So I'm going to start by outlining uh, the background to this particular case, and then we'll get stuck into uh, the difficulties that Paul and I think that it raises. On the 3rd of March 2019, the former leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, made a visit to uh, his local mosque for Visit My Mosque Day. In the course of making that visit, a political protester threw an egg at Corbyn. This happened uh, at around 3.30 in the afternoon. Now, the case of Riley against Murray uh, concerns tweets posted on Twitter um, by uh, the defendant, but in order to understand the tweet that the defendant posted, uh, we we need to outline uh, some preceding tweets. Just under three hours after uh, Corbyn had the egg thrown at him, the TV personality Rachel Riley posted a tweet. This tweet was a retweet of an Owen Jones tweet, Owen Jones being a political commentator. Uh, Jones's original tweet had been posted in January of 2019, so about two months before this incident. Jones's tweet had uh, referred to uh, an incident where an egg was thrown by an anti-fascist protester at the far-right political figure Nick Griffin. In Jones's original tweet, he had said... Sound advice is, if you don't want eggs thrown at you, don't be a Nazi. 
after the egg was thrown at Corbyn, Riley's tweet retweeted Jones's and added the words, good advice, along with an emoticon of an egg and of a red rose. The red rose being the emblem of the Labour Party. Now, uh, it's found as a matter of fact in the case by Mr. Justice Nicklin, at paragraph eight in the judgment, that Riley's tweet did refer to the Corbyn incident. A little later on that evening, so 3rd of March 2019, the defendant, Laura Murray, puts her own tweet out. And this was after she'd already uh, posted tweets in direct reply to Riley, where she made clear her misgivings about the meaning of Riley's uh, tweet, essentially saying that Riley was encouraging violence. In Murray's own tweet, which, importantly, neither quoted, nor screenshotted, nor retweeted, nor directly replied to Riley's tweet, uh, she said this. Today, Jeremy Corbyn went to his local mosque for Visit My Mosque Day and was attacked by a Brexiteer. Rachel Riley tweets that Corbyn deserves to be violently attacked because he is a Nazi. This woman is as dangerous as she is stupid. Nobody should engage with her, ever. Riley's claim for libel is in respect of that tweet. Now, Mr. Justice Nicklin conducted a preliminary hearing on uh, meaning um, back in 2020 and came to the conclusion there uh, that the ordinary and natural meaning of the tweet was threefold. One, that uh, Corbyn had uh, been attacked. Two, that Riley had publicly stated in a tweet that he deserved to be violently attacked. And three, that by so doing, Riley had shown herself to be a dangerous and stupid person who risked inciting unlawful violence. People should not engage with her. The first two meanings that Mr. Justice Nicklin uh, happens upon um, are, he says, assertion of fact, and the third is an expression of opinion. When the case came to trial, uh, issues of serious harm under Section 1 were litigated along with defences. Uh, and so we now have the judgment on that as well. The outcome of the case is that Riley's claim has succeeded. Uh, none of Murray's pleaded defences were successful. Uh, and uh, Murray uh, has been ordered to pay £10,000 in damages to Riley for libel. Um, 
that we expect would also come with a hefty bill for costs given the, the, the length of this litigation. Now, at the outset, for reasons that will become clear in the course of our discussion, Paul and I would like to make absolutely explicitly clear that everything we're about to say, however so it might be phrased, is an expression of our opinion. Uh, indeed, our two opinions. It might sound like we are making assertions of fact, but what we are doing is interpreting a judgment of the High Court, and thus we are not, in fact, giving you facts, we are simply giving you our opinion. And everything that we say should be taken in that vein for the rest of the episode. Paul, there was a time we didn't have to say that, but I think now that we do, and that's the basis of the problem that I have with this um, particular judgment, but we'll come to that a little later, um, because structurally it makes sense to deal, I think, with uh, the issue of serious harm first, um, and that's the issue that you've been focusing on. So perhaps you could uh, tell us why. Thanks, Tom. Um, I think, well, before before we get on to serious harm, let's just say something very general about uh, defamation law and the reason why this, this case gives us um, a cause for concern. Um, Defamation law, like privacy law, like any kind of media law, is meant to be, uh, if not intuitive, then at least understandable. The aims of it should be uh, easily describable so that we can get a sense of how well it's performing in order to understand whether the law would benefit from development um, or not. Um, defamation law has for a very long time um, being in serious risk of becoming so technical as to have lost all sense of its purpose. The decisions that courts reach in a number of different cases are entirely uh, rational and logical on the basis of precedent, but not necessarily understandable to uh, the man on the Clapham omnibus. Now, Historically, of course, defamation was a uh, jury uh, case. It was a jury trial, and uh, the law had to be understandable to the uh, jury. The purposes of the law had to be understandable to the jury so that the jury could reach uh, an, a decision that was um, reliable. Um, obviously, we've, we've long done away with jury trials for um, defamation, um, and... Consequently, though, I think we're now beginning to lose sense of what defamation law is for. So that when we look at a case like Riley and Murray, uh, part of the reason why uh, it exercises us in the way that it does is because, because the law is starting to make less and less sense when we think back to its purpose. Ostensibly, defamation law exists to protect against serious reputational damage to the person who is defamed uh, through words uh, that are untrue. Now, when we, um, when we look at uh, Riley and Murray and we think through what has happened there, the, the uh, judgment itself um, 
of course, could have taken lots of different forms. There are lots of different cases, as we've seen on the podcast over the years, that you and I disagree on uh, in the terms of the way that the law is applied, in terms of the way that the law is understood. Um, now, that that is perfectly reasonable, that different judges on different days might reach different conclusions on the facts that they are presented with, or rather on the, on the testimony that they're presented with, and that can lead them in different directions, which to the outside world uh, looks strange, but, but for those that were there, entirely understandable. But what I can't fathom, what I can't understand, is why the law ha- arrives at this outcome in favour of uh, Riley. And... The key issue I think I'm struggling with is the law's treatment now of Section 1 of the Defamation Act. Section 1 of the Defamation Act is simple enough because, in, 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 to, to paraphrase, um, it is a, a threshold test for seriousness to ensure that trivial instances of technically defamatory words are booted out, um, hopefully as quickly as possible, to to save both parties uh, time and energy uh, in terms of uh, the the cost of the trial, in terms of the emotional energy uh, of the trial itself. Um, So section one really acts as uh, a filter, or it should act as a filter, so so that these trivial instances can be booted out so that the court's time is not wasted on them. I look at the facts of this case and I think, how on earth did this get all the way into a courtroom such that the court's time had to be taken up dealing with what on any analysis looks like a storm in a teacup? The reason why, in my opinion, God, I think uh, that this is so problematic is because you're dealing with parties that have taken to Twitter, a forum that encourages the vitriolic. I mean, that's why it exists. There's a reason why Donald Trump chose Twitter uh, as his his preferred um, place for, for launching his diatribes because it it not only expects, it demands people to adopt the most radical positions possible in order to get noticed. People say outrageous things in Twitter because Twitter is not a place for the sensible and the reasonable and the careful and the nuanced positions. Um, It is not a forum that encourages sort of academic, thoughtful, considered debate. It's just not. It's a place in which to um, shout and scream into the void, often at other people. And that's partly the format of Twitter because there's such a limit on words. And it's it's partly due to the nature of Twitter. There is so much said on Twitter that the only way to get noticed really is to speak loudly and outrageously. Now, the law doesn't seem to have caught up with this. The law doesn't seem to recognise what Twitter is and what Twitter is for. 
it's still trapped in that Victorian thinking. Now, this of itself is problematic because in Victorian times, which is where our law of defamation really comes from and really where it ended in terms of its development. In Victorian times, if you were slandered uh, in in print, if you were libeled in print, rather, um, you really only had recourse to the courts in order to get a statement from a court in your favour. This is the whole reason why we say that in in defamation, the judgment itself is vindicatory. In a sense, the judgment in your favour as a claimant is more important than the, the, the awarded damages that you get because it is proof of the defendant's untruth. So that if at a later point you enter into a, or try to enter into a relationship with someone, business or otherwise, if they're under the false impression that you have done something which you did not, you have the judgment there to correct them. The reason for that is because, as we know, newspapers can reach, historically, newspapers could reach a mass audience in the way that a single individual couldn't. And that's another reason why the judgment is so important and acts in, in its, uh, as a vindicatory um, tool. What are we talking about, though, when we try and apply that kind of thinking to the world of Twitter? If one public speaker says something to another public speaker and the world of Twitter, the world of Twitter and everyone who's on it, um, reads and chooses to read selectively, as uh, Twitter again encourages, what does it mean to say, to think, that one person has been defamed in circumstances where they cannot defend themselves through counter-speech? I mean, this is the whole point of Twitter. Speech, counter-speech, they can all reach in the same places or all not reach in the same places. So what is the vindicatory function of a judgment, the necessity of a judgment in this person's favour in circumstances where they can correct misimpressions, where they can correct misunderstandings uh, for themselves? The second thing is, again, coming back to the nature of Twitter, how is it that this person, this claimant, has been defamed in a way that is seriously harmful in circumstances in which she already has a reputation and a position which, in my opinion, is hostile towards those who are supporters of Corbyn, in my opinion. In my opinion. This is someone who adopts a vitriolic position. They adopt a truculent position in relation to those who disagree with her. So, so this is not a this is this claimant is not a wallflower. This claimant is not someone who has been singled out for rough treatment in circumstances where she did nothing to provoke it. This is someone who has made a comment. And this is also someone who has made an ambiguous comment. And someone else um, has responded to her. 
Now, I'm, I'm not getting into at this stage the technicalities of defamation because that is a rabbit hole that I think we should avoid for as long as possible when we think about this case. I'm thinking purely about the wording of section one. When we consider what the, def the defendant has done here, can we say that the claimant has been seriously harmed? Well, what does seriously harmed mean in this context? Now, we know from the show that seriously harmed is not just about the words themselves, it's about the actual consequences. Well, fine. What are the actual consequences here? What are the actual consequences from a person who's already established a binary world, a binary world in which there are those for her, those who agree with those who agree with her, and those against her, those who disagree with her, whose view of her reputation has been tarnished as a result of what the defendant did. Because there's only two types of people in the claimant's world. There's only the people that agree with her and the people that don't agree with her. Well, the people that agree with her will look at this statement and say, well, that's just typical, isn't it? That's just typical of the Corbyn Brigade. Of course they would say that. The people who are against her, this doesn't alter their impression of her at all because they already had this impression of her. It just confirms what they thought beforehand. This is what I just can't fathom about the law at present, that it doesn't Although the, the mechanics seem to be there for us to be able to take this worldview, this larger view, and really think through and grapple with the actual consequences for the claimant, none of that seems to have taken place here. The law hasn't demanded that it take place here, and I find this really strange. As I've said, in my opinion, I find it really strange that this actually got all the way to a court hearing, just think of the hours and hours of court time that have been wasted here to hear this nonsense, in my opinion. But also think about the test itself. Are we saying that section one, which is meant to be a higher threshold than what the common law was able to come up with before, are we saying that section one has been satisfied here? that this person who is quite happy to engage in vitriolic diatribes against other people has been seriously wronged by someone engaging in exactly the same type of behaviour against her, in my opinion. The judgment, interestingly enough, doesn't spend much time on the words that are used in the context of section one uh, on, on, on the meaning of the words in the defendant's tweet but rather focuses following supreme court's guidance in the show on the real world impact that we've been talking about now this to me is a clear sign that um, the court did not feel that the words themselves were sufficiently inherently damaging to uh, constitute serious harm. Thus, only if there was serious harm evidenced through real-world impact would that be satisfied. And yet it has been. Um, 
so what is there in terms of evidence? There's some evidence of the number of retweets and likes of the tweet. Uh, the uh, judge points out that evidence is not absolutely complete because, as requested by the claimant in her uh, letter of claim, defendant deleted the tweet. The consequence of deleting the tweet is that the statistical evidence as to how many times the tweet has been viewed or retweeted or, or liked and retweeted uh, is lost. There is a screenshot um, that was taken at some point before the defendant's tweet was deleted. Um, it was deleted 15th of March 2019 that shows at the time the screenshot was taken, whenever that was, uh, the tweet had been retweeted uh, just over 1,500 times, liked just under 5,000 times, and had provoked 736 responses. We are talking just over 7,000 people's engagement with the tweet that can be evidenced, some of this negative. But as you rightly point out, I think, Paul, um, Riley is a well-known person who engages in controversy. Um, whatever your view of her position on the matter you to uh, comment on, she knowingly puts out statements that are negative, live and acute political controversy. Uh, and people agree with her or disagree with her publicly because of the positions that she takes and is well known for taking. Uh, in your opinion? In my opinion, of course. Hmm. Um, so what we're lacking, I think, is evidence of any actual damage to reputation. And once upon a time, you didn't need that in defamation. But as I understand it, the point of Section 1 was to bring us to a position where you did need that. Um, in essence, Section 1 removed the old distinction between libel and slander um, where in order you know to, to, to found a slander claim one had to prove actual damage to yeah. reputation um, and that was the point of the section one threshold either the words themselves will be so serious that damage could be inferred or you would have to evidence it um, and I'm not sure that enough dots have been joined here to make that case convincingly. That is, of course, just my opinion. Um, anything else you want to say on Section 1, Paul, the serious harm threshold, which in this case, you know, we have to repeat, was deemed to have been met. Uh, well, there's another thing. Yeah, I mean, we... We know that evidencing actual actual harm is not a numbers game. We know that because, yeah. um, and I forget who said this now, but there was a judge that said, you know, one, one carefully fired arrow can hit the bullseye. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't matter that we can only show you know what a, a low number of people have engaged with it. But I come back to the same point, which is, okay, people have engaged with this tweet. So what? How do we know that the people who have engaged uh, with this have had their reputation altered? Now, I'm not trying to set up some kind of ridiculous test that could never be satisfied because you'd have to go out and interview thousands and thousands of people. 
But I think as a minimum, we should at least take into account the distinct possibility that no one's impression of the individual has been altered. There's been no reputational damage because of the very nature of Twitter. We could also think about the allegation itself. The allegation is that Riley has said that Corbyn deserved to be violently attacked because he is a Nazi. Is that a statement that can cause serious reputational harm? To say of a person that they have said a person deserved to be violently attacked. For whatever reason, actually. Because I think the key in it is the deserving to be violently attacked rather than Corbyn being a Nazi. Um, yeah, I don't think it's. I don't think it damages a person's reputation to say of them they said that Corbyn was a Nazi. No, but but again, this comes back. Engaging again, this comes back to a real difficulty with uh, defamation law. That you know, it, the judges are sat there and lawyers are sat there carefully poring over the the sort of finer linguistic points of meaning, which is, again, this ridiculous situation that we've got to with our law. It's so detached from reality of itself that I think it deserves greater attention than it actually gets. But in circumstances where the person who started this, you know, the claimant herself made an ambiguous statement, her ambiguity is what provokes the response that it gets, which is an interpretation. I mean, we'll come back to fact opinion in a minute, in my opinion. But um, we we should at least, I think, reflect on just the awkwardness of this. That here's a claimant who said something entirely ambiguous. And here's a defendant now put under scrutiny to understand exactly what it is she meant by the words that she said in circumstances where the claimant isn't subjected to anything like that level of scrutiny. Well, let's indeed come on to that, because that really is the crux of the issue that I have with this case. Um, I'm less bothered by the serious harm issue. I agree with Paul's opinion. Um, on serious harm. In my opinion, Paul's opinion is, is, is entirely valid on serious harm. Um, oh, actually, no, I'd like that agreement. Sorry, the agreement with me, I'd like that to be a statement of fact, please, rather well, than opinion. This, this then is the issue, isn't it? So um, I, I don't think that the statement Riley tweets that Corbyn deserves to be violently attacked because he is a Nazi is an assertion of fact. Uh, it's found by the court to be so, but I don't think that it is. And that is the problem I have with the judgment. And I'll explain my thinking on this. The statement made by Murray is an interpretation of what Riley put out there. And as Paul has quite rightly said, it's an ambiguous tweet. And the court found it was an ambiguous tweet, that it was open to a range of possible interpretations. So that's found as a matter of fact. It is also stated in the judgment, paragraph 75, that Murray's statement is an interpretation. 
Um, but the judge says, since Murray's statement, Murray's interpretation is only one of the possible interpretations, it is presented as the only interpretation in the tweet, and therefore becomes an assertion of fact. Um, I don't think that that can possibly be right, I'm afraid. Uh, any interpretation, let's go to sort of linguistic basics here. Any interpretation of a statement made by another person, or indeed any interpretation of a statement made by yourself, your own interpretation of what you've said, but certainly your interpretation of what somebody else has said, is inevitably, inherently, a matter of opinion. Because language is not immutable. Because language does not have objective meaning. No utterance that has ever been put out into the ether by a human being has had objective meaning. Now, that's a big sweeping statement on the nature of language. And just because I happen to believe it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, everybody else will agree with me. And it certainly does not make life uh, straightforward for libel lawyers, because libel law has operated for hundreds of years on the basis that statements can and do have objective meaning. Now, I would love to sit here and spend the rest of the day debating the, the nature of meaning in language, but I'm going to spare everybody that. <laughs> Whilst I think, in my opinion, that um, there is no statement out there that has objective meaning and that every statement is interpreted and thus, whenever one says so-and-so said X, that must be treated as an opinion because it is an interpretation of a statement, we can confine that view far less controversially and without taking up hours and hours of time philosophical debate, we can confine it to ambiguous statements. And I think there can be very little objection to that. Whenever one is confronted with a statement that is clearly ambiguous and thus necessarily invites interpretation in order to be comprehended, any interpretation of that ambiguous statement can only be a matter of opinion. Even if the structure of the phrase, the structure of the sentence, is declarative and thus reads like an assertion of fact, right? Um, the same is true of opinions expressed the world over in terms of material that is put into the public debate, into public, in terms of material that is put into the public domain for comment and criticism, whether that is Novels, films, sporting performances, people don't tend to say, in my opinion, Manchester United played poorly at the weekend. They say Manchester United played poorly at the weekend. Right? People don't say that film is terrible. Well, people don't say I think that film is terrible. They say that film is terrible. And particularly, as Paul points out, on a medium like Twitter, which in, encourages people uh, to uh, set out their positions uh, clearly, forthrightly, and in ways that attract attention, um, and also limits people's uh, use of characters. We, one has 280 characters 
to put a, a view out there using the words I think that takes up 13, which in a tweet is a lot of characters. I think the ambiguity of the statement put out by uh, Riley, which is recognised by the court, um, means that anything that interprets it has to be treated in this, as an assertion of opinion, no matter how it is structured. Um, yeah. There is a clue to this as well. Uh, Murray says, Rachel Riley tweets. Uh, she has, uh, Murray has said that Riley is saying this and thus makes it quite clear that this is an interpretation. Right? It would be different if, if, if Murray said, Rachel Riley believes Corbyn should be violently attacked. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, I still think that would be an expression of opinion. I still think it would be an interpretation of a statement, but it wouldn't be perhaps quite so obvious to the audience that that is what it is. But where she says Rachel Riley tweets, um, it makes clear, I think, that this is an interpretation because there is some background material. And what is that background material? It is a tweet. Now, there is a difficulty here for Murray in that she may well have failed to satisfy the required elements of the opinion-based defence in Section 3 of the Defamation Act, mm. even if this statement had been found to be one of opinion. Yeah. I suspect that that is what would have happened. Though I think that there is sufficient coverage that my, my personal opinion <laughs> uh, is that there is enough to satisfy Section 3, because Section 3 requires... Uh, the, the defendant set out in general or specific terms the basis, the factual basis for the opinion. And the factual basis for the opinion is the existence of Riley's tweet and its content. Yeah. Um, it's not linked to, it's not screenshotted, it's not um, retweeted. But in using those words, Rachel Riley tweets, that makes quite clear that the evidence exists in a tweet. And if one is on Twitter, it is not terribly... Uh, difficult to locate the relevant tweet because you know who Rachel Riley is. You go to her Twitter feed and you will find presumably a number of statements, but in short order, you will find the one that is being referred to because it is the one uh, that uh, the court has already identified did refer to the Corbyn incident and people would uh, uh, recognize that if they were remotely interested, uh, they would uh, recognize that. So this got me thinking about analogies uh, and, and whether there are uh, analogous cases that could help us to point up the possible problems for people commenting on Twitter after this. And the one that sprang to mind after a few days of thinking about it was uh, a now infamous tweet from uh, Sally Burko uh, some years ago. This was in 2013. Sally Burko, who was the wife of the then Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, and had a, a fairly substantial Twitter presence and following, put out a tweet which said, Why is Lord McAlpine trending? Innocent face. Innocent face was written out in words, um, but with a star at each end, which indicated it was to be thought of as a stage direction 
or as an emoticon, something of that ilk. Why is Lord McAlpine trending innocent face? Now, Lord McAlpine brought an action for libel because he said that that tweet, taken in the context of a Newsnight investigation which had promised to uh, expose a senior conservative politician as a paedophile, linked him uh, to uh, being that person uh, and thus seriously harmed his reputation uh, and defamed him. And I, I think McAlpine is, 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 is entitled to bring that claim. The court found on the preliminary issue, which is as far as it went before it settled, of meaning that the uh, tweet was defamatory of uh, Lord McAlpine. But let's imagine that Sally Burko puts that tweet out and somebody else, right, some other person, perhaps a junior Labour Party staffer, tweets, Sally Burko says Lord McAlpine is a paedophile. And now imagine that Sally Burko sues the person who put that tweet out mm. instead of Lord McAlpine suing yeah. That is essentially the situation that we have. Burko's tweet was ambiguous. The court found that it was defamatory of yeah. McAlpine because one of the meanings that it can bear is the innuendo meaning that the claimant, Lord McAlpine, pleaded. Absolutely right. Nothing controversial about that in uh, libel law. We're all familiar with how that works. Yeah. But the idea that Burko could not only be a defendant but also a claimant because the ambiguous tweet could also have been interpreted in a way that was entirely innocent, innocent face, <laughs> um, I, 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 I think is ludicrous. And, and it, it, it entirely reinforces the point that you made earlier, Paul, which is that in putting an ambiguous tweet out there, claimant has invited a range of possible interpretations. And yep. if the claimant wanted only one particular interpretation that was not defamatory of yep. herself, she, both uh, these particular people, whether Sally Burko, and, and there's, there's no indication that Burko had any intention of bringing the claim, by the way, uh, mm. and Rachel Riley particularly, had ample space within their 280 character uh, allowance yep. to clarify what they were uh, trying to say and make yeah. the tweet less ambiguous. Yeah. As I say, I still think any interpretation of it, however unambiguous you try to make it, can only ever be an opinion. But that, you know, that, 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 as I say, is the bit that we don't need to get into that sweeping statement because it is clearly ambiguous. Yeah. Uh, if you put out a statement that attracts interpretation because its nature is an ambiguous one, then you cannot very well complain that it is interpreted. Um, well, and there is a big difference here between yeah. recognising it's an opinion and saying it's also an opinion that can be defended under Section 3. I don't think the two have to go together. It's entirely possible that you can interpret a statement yep. and give your opinion on it without phrasing it as if it's an opinion, but recognising it as an opinion, and still not have the defence of honest opinion because you don't meet the criteria required. 
there's no guarantee that you will succeed with an opinion-based defense. That's why the opinion-based defense is there and written the way that it is, so that it doesn't provide automatic defense of, oh, it was a comment, so you know the, you, it, it's un, unassailable. Um, the comment still has to meet certain requirements. It has to have a rational connection to a factual basis, such as an honest person could have held the opinion based on the facts that were known at the time. But yeah. if we assume that it is an opinion, that statement uh, made by Murray, then I think the chances that it does meet the Section 3 criteria are quite high. That's in my opinion. Uh, and thus that it would be defensible. I now really worry. And I think this is the point that we're coming to. Maybe we can sort of uh, talk a little bit in conclusion about this. I now really worry about how interpretative tweets, interpretative statements, will themselves be interpreted by the courts. Because you and I, Paul, in our academic work, for example, we frequently talk about work by other academics. You know, we have to cite the work of other people. I don't tend to say, I think academic X when she says x means y yeah but i do say when academic x says x what they're really getting at is y now it's phrased in a declarative way it looks like an assertion of fact but it can only be an assertion of opinion because I'm interpreting their words and I'm doing so more particularly in the context of me making my own argument. Everything written in an academic essay, an academic article, yeah. is a matter of the academic's opinion, right? That's why if the academic actually copies the words and ideas of other people without acknowledging them, they'll be found to have plagiarized because they'd be passing it off as theirs. Yeah. Not passing it off as some third-party verifiable fact. They'd be passing it off as their own idea and their own yeah. work, which is why we have to cite it. But, of course, we as students uh, are, are have it drilled into us at university, thou shalt not write in the first person. Yeah. Thou shalt write in declarative fashion, right? in the third person. So you don't spend your time using up your word limits with phrases like, in my humble opinion, it is this. Yeah. You assert, you simply assert, and it is taken as being your opinion. That is the nature of formal, written, argumentative English. Yeah. And is this judgment saying that unless you add the precious words, in my opinion, <laughs> what you say will be taken as an assertion of fact? Because reading the judgment, I honestly can't see any indication that Murray would not have had that statement labelled an opinion if she had just written the words I think that yeah um, and if what we're saying is failure to add those 13 characters into your already overloaded tweet yeah will result in your declarative sentence being uh, uh, labelled an assertion of fact mm. then there's going to be an awful lot of assertions of fact that are found when people are really simply interpreting others and that could very quickly get seriously out of hand could it not yeah, so this brings me to this brings me full circle back to the point I'm saying at the beginning about the nature of defamation law. There's a reason why 
uh, we want our media law to have an intuitive sense about it because we all need to know how to uh, interact with each other uh, in a way that conforms with the law. We need to be able to judge in advance what is uh, going to fall foul of the law and what is not. Now, we can't all keep up with the vagaries of judicial decision making. The appeal of defamation law at its most fundamental level is that it is almost biblical. Treat others as you would want to be treated yourself, um, but also do, do no wrong, do no harm. The point is, if you're making false assertions about another person and that damages their reputation, it's understandable why the law would be involved or could get involved and find against you in a court. The difficulty, though, with defamation law, which has happened over a period of hundreds of years, it's not recent, is that it's got further and further and further away from the simple idea, become too technical, too complicated, and almost feels like a trap. In certain circumstances, if you say this, you use that that format of words, then you will have to pay the other person. Now, paying the other person means putting your house, your livelihood at risk. The effect of that is to chill debate. Tom talked about the, the academic context. Well, why do we not take into account the Twitter context? What we're really talking about here, I don't want to glorify Twitter by, by asserting a sort of free speech argument in terms of Article 10, because I think that's a nonsense. What we're talking about is liberty. And what we're talking about here is the ability to engage in a robust um, robust, mature, and um, at times provocative uh, debate with other people on any and everything. Because that is, as I said before, what Twitter encourages. It's the ability to be able to say things to other people, even things that they might not like, even things that are, are provocative and annoying and everything else. Now, if we adopt uh, a fairly um, sensible understanding uh, of that concept of Twitter as a place to engage in provocative uh, debate, um, then really the number of uh, legal claims that emerge from it should be fairly low, negligible at, at practice. But what we seem to have is a sort of trap where actually much all of what we say on Twitter is potentially subject to libel um, for those that are rich enough to be able to pursue a claim. Now that that's ludicrous. It's also ludicrous to allow someone who is themselves provocative in their opinion to be able to put at risk the livelihood, the well-being of another person because what they have said has irritated them. I mean, as totalitarianism goes, that's lesson 101. But for a mature democratic society, if you choose to engage in that kind of debate and you are spoken to as you speak to others, the law shouldn't get involved. 
it should tell you where to go as quickly as possible. The fact that this individual has been indulged in the way that she has in this and other cases demonstrates that something is seriously wrong with our law. I think this is the sort of case which we could very quickly start to see a lot more of if the courts don't get a grip on it quickly. Um, the structure of this, person A puts a tweet out there that is ambiguous, person B interprets it and uh, publicises that interpretation, um, and person A takes an exception to the interpretation and launches a claim about it, is something I, 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 I think we could well see more of. We're already starting to see some early signs of it. This case is one of them. There is also the case which, um, according to an article in The Spectator, has now been brought um, by an academic called Peter Newborn uh, against the author Michael Rosen. The background to that case, um, you can look it up online, um, but uh, essentially uh, Newborn, who uh, is... Uh, a person who has spoken out against um, anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, and uh, he, he's, he's perceived it, um, put a tweet out featuring a picture, a photograph of Jeremy Corbyn reading uh, uh, Michael Rosen's children's book, We're Going on a Bear Hunt, in which um, the uh, image had been altered um, so that uh, instead of the um, uh, correct image of the book, um, uh, the title The Protocols of Zion had been superimposed over this. Now, Protocols of Zion is a, an anti-Semitic uh, text. Um, so the, what that then did was create an image where it looked like Corbyn was reading a, a, an anti-Semitic text. Um, the author of We're Going on a Bear Hunt, Michael Rosen, who, like Newborn, is Jewish, um, put a tweet out um, to uh, tagging Newborn's employers, um, explaining what had happened uh, factually and saying this is a loathsome and anti-Semitic thing to do. Um, Newborn, we are told by The Spectator, is bringing a libel action against Rosen for that tweet. Wow. Um, and that is structurally, I think, exactly the same as what we have here. Person wow. A makes a controversial statement that can be interpreted in multiple ways. Person B interprets it in a way that person A doesn't like and publicizes it uh, and uh, is then sued for it. And it troubles me if actions like that end up in court. Um, yeah. Although, of course... We could look at it the other way because, you know, we, we are lowly academics and frankly, you know, there, there's scope in our lives to find ways to make more money, right? You know, if, if you and I, Paul, were to set up our own Twitter, well, I know you already have a Twitter account, I do not, but maybe I should get one because um, we could put out there some controversial, ambiguous statements, provoke some libelous responses and win 10 grand a pop make make a living out of costs quite quite why the law protects the sensitivities of the insensitive i have no idea well that's well phrased one thing i do want to say though before we before we finish and i think it is important that um we we you know that, that we say this is our criticism in this podcast is not 
so much uh, really leveled at, at the judge in this case as it is the state of the law. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, I think it, it is the way. law that makes this 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 happen. It is the yeah. law, the, 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 the doctrinal rules that have made libel so uh, overly uh, uh, technical and complex and uh, that have lost sight of the broader context. And and we, we very much hope that our opinion is not taken in, in, as anything other than opinion on the law. Yeah. Um, Although that opinion actually is a statement of fact. We, we don't want that understood as a statement of opinion. In our opinion. Yeah. Factually. Factually. Uh, so advice for listeners, uh, in, in, until you hear otherwise, hopefully from the Court of Appeal at some point, um, do make sure that you start any tweet with the words, I think that, just, you know, be on the safe side, protect yourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to make money, say something controversial and ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And so uh, wait for the response. Yeah. Uh, that brings us, I think, to the end of our discussion for today. Uh, we'll be back at some point before too long. Take care of yourselves.